Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is writer-producer Tom Baker and author of One Dog's Faith, How My Dog Helped Me Trust in God and Overcome Chronic Worrying. With his business failing and facing bankruptcy, Tom Baker lost 30 pounds due to stress and was unable to function as a father and husband. It wasn't until he began looking at life through the eyes of his dog, Mango, that he managed to turn things around. Tom Baker has worked in radio and television for over 35 years as a writer, producer, and editor. He's currently executive producer and owner of Cobblestone Entertainment and has worked on production for A&E, Discovery, HGTV, Food Network, and the Travel Channel. Welcome to the show, Tom. Nice to have you here today. Hi, Catherine. So nice to, uh, to be on your show. Thank you. Great. Well, okay, so One Dog's Faith... The question is, how and how your dog helped you trust in God and overcome chronic worrying. How can it, first of, I guess my first question is, what happened? I mean, it, how can a dog have the, you know, the capacity or the, you know, how can a dog do that, I guess, is my first question. I mean, obviously that's what the book is about. So start with, start with Mango. Mango is, uh, she's kind of a one-of-a-kind dog in, in a sense that, uh, I've never seen one like her. I, I have had 15 dogs. I've counted them up uh, in my dog career, if you if you will. Uh, but she is just this silly, playful, gentle, loving lick factory. Uh, she was a rescue. She's a mud. I have no idea what she is. Um, she's maybe 50, 55 pounds, so she's kind of medium-sized uh, you could say she might be a spaniel. You could say she might be a uh, Bernese mountain dog. A lot of people uh, say they see a lot of that in her. But she's just as sweet, as sweet as she could be. And as you watch her for any length of time, you, you kind of start realizing that she's the kind of animal that really cares for everyone else around her, especially in her family, much more than she cares for herself. She she just has assigned herself, as many dogs do, to watch over us, protect us, and be uh, very aware of how we're doing. Uh, she does a smile check uh, many, many times a day, and if, if she senses that something's up, uh, she is the first one there to, to come and do whatever she can. Uh, so when you is, got is Mango, you, first of all, I was going to ask you how old she is, but, I mean, you were in bad straits. I mean, your business failing, facing bankruptcy, losing 30 pounds. I don't want to re- repeat the intro, <laughs> but you were not in good shape. So it was at that point that you rescued Mango? She came into your life, your family's life, and then was able to turn things around for you? How did that work? No, it's it's really it's not that simple. She was she was already there in our family. She uh, now is nine years old. This all uh, this uh, crazy uh, event happened maybe five years ago. So she had been with us for uh, three or four years already, and uh, and you know had, had the bond was already strong. You know the thing is, I, I have always been a worrier, and uh, you know I, I define worry is being afraid of something that you don't think you can handle. And I, I have just, uh, my father was a worrier. Uh, it, he laid down the groundwork, and I did a lot better than he did at it. 
And uh, it all culminated. I, I've owned my business, and it's still around uh, and doing well now, but um, I've owned my business uh, for 15 years now, and uh, it was doing really well. It's a TV production business, uh, and when I opened it, uh, it nearly doubled every year for five or six years, and then it just, one year, 2012, it just tanked. I mean, it just fell to pieces, and I was kind of left holding the bag with employees with very high debt and made some bad decisions about, you know, about how to handle it and ended up owing the IRS tons and tons of money. So uh, there was a huge threat in my life of total financial disaster. And I just, uh, you know, that just took my worry to, to exponential levels. I've never been like that. And and I really, you know, looking back. I want to ask you because uh, what about, do you think was the reason that your business was kind of was going down the tubes because you had this excess worry and you weren't making good choices because of that? You weren't able to get a, I guess, say, get a grip or to um, get rid of the I, I, chronic worrying is anxiety. I was, you know, sort of in social work. Oh, terms, absolutely. But, I think yeah. that those two go hand in hand. And and what that does to you, what anxiety and chronic worry does, you know is you make terrible decisions. You're, you're, you're reacting and not thinking it through. You're just doing, doing uh, what you can out of total, uh, total snap decisions. And um, the IRS was probably the worst decision because I decided to keep my employees uh, in the midst of... Uh, of the, uh, I mean, the business went down to about a third of what it was. And I can attribute it to the uh, delayed reaction to the 2008 economy disaster. Uh, but it was also uh, just a lot of the producers that I worked with, they either moved on, uh, projects got, uh, budgets got slashed, uh, projects got delayed. It just, it was almost like the perfect storm. It just all happened at once. And I had, uh, as many production companies do, you leverage uh, paying uh freelancers and uh, debts from one project, you know, a different project pays for different things, and it all turns out well in the end, usually. And uh, it just didn't. I I owed a lot of people a lot of money, and over the course of over a year, it just didn't improve. It got worse and worse and worse, and I didn't react to it. I just thought it would come back and um and so and, as it uh, this didn't, is my next question what about this is the business we're talking about but obviously then the other side is you're a father you're a husband so what was the impact on that on your family on the your worst, yeah right the worse it got the more i withdrew uh the more i felt like a failure and the more uh i just felt like uh one i didn't deserve to be happy and two they didn't deserve to not have somebody take care of them. And I just didn't feel as, you know, as a lot of husbands, uh, providers do, when that stops, you just feel like you failed them. And uh, it took me into a real dark place. And I allowed myself to be there. Uh, It was certainly a choice. And, you know, I prayed over and over, uh, God, take this away. You know what have I done? Why is why is all this happening? And uh, you know I was I was looking for the wrong answers. 
I never looked for strength and I never looked for clarity and understanding of what I need to be doing to grow. And that's what struggle and that's what challenges do to us. And we, you know, I tried to run from it instead of trying to learn from it. But what, what the whole, my, my wife was a total rock through it. She was, she was trying every which way to reach me and grab me and pull me out of this pit. And I just, I ran, every time she tried, I, run, I would run further. When you say you would run down. further and she would try to get you out of the pit, would she try to get you into therapy? Um, would she try, or, or counseling, let's say? Um, or, yeah, well, uh, that obvious, and, you know, in church. Yeah. And, and I just wouldn't, I just felt like I can handle this. I can do this. Uh, as, you know, it's just like trying to get a man to, to, uh, to get in, uh, 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 instructions or, you know, read a map or, or get directions somewhere. You do, we just won't do it. We think we can do it ourselves. And that's, uh, that wasn't working, but I didn't allow anything else. But the one thing that really stood out to me in all this craziness, my, my family, they tried, but, you know, it just, I wouldn't have it. I wouldn't have their help. But I did notice this silly dog was happy all the time. This silly dog would greet me at the door uh, in, at my worst and just come look at me. You know, she would lick my hand and look up at me and like, you know, I love you no matter what. I just think you are the greatest thing ever. You may not be in a great place, but I'm going to, I'm going to lick you and I'm going to love you until you notice me. And, and, uh, she just kept crying and I just somehow started watching her and how she was trying to be. You know, I think dogs, they, if you break them down, and not all dogs are this way, but many of them are, if you break down and, and look at what they stand for, what they try to be, uh, they, loyalty, patience, forgiveness, gratitude, submission, contentment, honesty, uh, how to relax. I mean, she's really good at that, how to serve. But the one thing that, you know, that I think all dogs represent is unconditional love. You know, love without definition, love without uh, adding the word but, I love you but. Uh, she just was all over trying to make me happy. And so in other words, was, this, is, this is, well, therapy dogs are, and they're very popular now uh, for good reasons yes. that you're discussing. Uh, so there, there is that unconditional love and not, demanding any kind of quid quo pro, um, even as even a, even a spouse or kids, as, as supportive as they can be, there's always, well, you know, I'm here too. You do have to respond to me and connect to me and do something for me, um, which you're saying, like with animals, that's not true. But another thing you said, personality, because different dogs, just like people, have different personalities, and perhaps not all dogs can do this or you know, would be able to have given you that kind of emotional support. So it's kind of like this This is a special dog, Mang, right? I mean, it's not just any dog that can do that. Well, I think she broke through to me uh, in her specialness, but then I started watching just her as as the average dog, and the biggest thing that just slapped me across the face was... Dogs live 
for now. They live for today. They could care less about yesterday, and they could care less about tomorrow. And that's exactly where I wasn't. I was living in the regret of the past, and I was living in the worry of how much worse is this going to get? How am I going to be able to handle this? How am I going to pay for that? My whole life was living in everything but now. And uh, that's one reason she and so many dogs are just downright happy is because that's where they live. They, they embrace right now. And right now, if you stop and think about it, is not all that bad. It could be a whole lot worse. And I miss that completely. And another living in the thing, moment. So you, well, you're talking about living in the moment. So I'm assuming, and you mentioned your father earlier, that he too suffered from anxiety and worrying, chronic worrying, and maybe there is a hereditary component to it. Um, that's possible. Maybe even some, yeah. Uh, you learn it from your parents, but you also there could be some kind of a chemical imbalance. And this sort of learning to live in the moment, as your dog has taught you, and mindful meditation does similar things, um, I think is very difficult to do in our culture today because there's always what are we going to do next? What are we going to handle next? I mean, it's not, it can be done as you've done it. You have, you did it, you're doing it. But I broke the barrier. <laughs> yeah. So how, let's be real specific, how did you do it? Okay, you have this dog who you suddenly, you had to be able to connect and suddenly take a look at her and say, and be able to connect. And uh, and then specifically, step by step, how did you get yourself back on track? Because here you're well, stressed out, depressed, um, you know, that's not easy to, and how long did it take? Oh, this, it was not an overnight thing. For sure, it it was it was it was gradual steps. But think of one of one of her favorite things. One of Mango's favorite things is to ride in the car. And every time I would go to the door, she was there waiting on me, hoping and 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 just with everything she was wanting to go with me in the car. It didn't matter where. But whenever I would take her, she put her nose press her nose hard against the window as if to say, please roll the window down, even in the rain. She didn't care. And uh, once she stuck her head out, it was just bliss. And I noticed she was just taking in the blessings and taking in the beauty and the, and the, you know, just stopping and saying, this is just amazing. And that's another, that's one thing uh, that, that I totally missed is in the, in the, in the middle of disaster, in the middle of struggle, uh, there's still blessings everywhere. Uh, we sometimes have to search really hard for them, but they're there. And I look back, and there's my family, a beautiful blessing that I was just ignoring because I was so focused on my problem. And, uh, and, and then also, dogs serve. They, they do their best to look beyond themselves and try to help somebody else. And when, when I broke that down, it meant if I try to help somebody else, forget about my deal for just a minute and look for somebody who might be in more worse shape than me, then, uh, and I, you know, I found it through church. There, there are just all kinds of opportunities to go help somebody. And when you do that, 
you actually do forget about your problem for a minute, and it minimizes it because there is somebody struggling a whole lot more than me, and I don't have to look far to find them. And I think that's very true, yeah. and I, I kind of want to relate this to your own because you, you have four children. I don't know what what are your the ages of your of your kids. There, it's a wide range. It's from twenty nine to nineteen to sixteen to ten. We adopted a little boy from Guatemala, and he is now ten, and, and uh, just a, a, a one of the biggest blessings around. And uh, I was walking right by, you know. I mean, it was just idiotic and I'm embarrassed but I just wasn't looking at that blessing in all of them. So you made some great choices along the way and as you say in adopting this little boy and then your other three children but you suddenly got lost. You just you, you I guess the external circumstances can overwhelm people. I mean let's They really it. can but, and and, yeah, and, and it just your business I failing use it as and facing an bankruptcy. Now. Yeah. So what do you tell your kids? I want to hear what they have to say because they've seen you, especially the 29-year-old, went through all of this with you um, and understood it, I assume. In each child, I have three boys. You know, each one responds differently, right? Oh, they, they do. Some of them, they, they just try not to talk about it and they, they glance over it and just try to give you a hug and, and uh, talk about everything. But, uh, you know, and the hardest thing is to to tell them, you know, we're in trouble. We can't buy that. We can't do this. We can't do that. And that, and that's where it takes, um, that's where it takes a parent back down into that hole is, is you just feel bad, uh, you know, and you, you say, I don't know how we're going to eat next week, but we'll work it out somehow. But, uh, you know, inside you're just, you're, you're, you're tearing yourself up. Uh, but the one thing that really changed was, I mean, I've always been a believer, but um, I never really believed what was being said in that in that book that uh, is the greatest selling book of all time. Uh, but the 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 message is basically hope. There is always hope in every situation. There is always growth, and there is always learning in every situation. Uh, we just can't get buried in it. We have to be able to look out and and believe, I believe, what works for me is that God can take any situation and make a blessing out of it. The blessing may be that I run into someone else who may uh, have a similar situation that I did, and I can be a shoulder to them. I've been through it, so they would listen to me. They might not listen to somebody I always, You know, else. we only have a few minutes left, but I think that's a real, for me, that's a good point that you make. I mean, I'm not a particularly religious person, but if I read through the Old Testament and the New Testament, I think about all the, the lessons and the stories, and, you know, it's 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, and I'm saying, well, this is the same thing that's happening now. I mean, the, the human nature is the same, I guess, and, the, and all of the, the lessons that can be learned from, uh, from, from the Bible, I think, are um, they're the same today as they were then, I guess. And, um, well, I think our reaction is we get yeah, angry and say, too. why yeah, exactly. me, instead of saying, maybe there's a little more to this. And if I just stop and, and quit being so selfish and, and, and so self-centered and realize that, um, that I can use this uh, and, it, and it can be used for growth and strength. I mean, I wake up now, I used to wake up 
dreading every moment. And now I wake up excited to see what I can learn from today. Whether it's bad, whether it's good, uh, I can gain strength with it and, and realize that I have strength. And, uh, and I'll go through it with, with God and my dog and my family. Well, so, so to, with a minute left, uh, let's make sh- we want everybody else to have the same opportunity. So, uh, <laughs> uh, your book, One Dog's Faith, How My Dog Helped Me Trust in God and Overcome Chronic Worrying, we can buy it online, bookstores everywhere. We need to know where we can get the book and also yes, web- uh, website or websites to go to. OneDogsFaith.com uh, is, is a good website. You can either buy it through Amazon there or... Uh, there's a buy now button, and it'll go through me, and I'll sign it and send it. One thing to know is this book is written through Mango's perspective. It is uh, a lot about the silly things that dogs do that may have more meaning than we think, and also her watching me go through uh, this chronic worry and trying her best to show me things. And dogs don't have a lot to work with, and so, you know, they, they she she, you could tell she was trying, and this is my imagination of what she was thinking as she was trying all this stuff. So it's, it's, it's a fun. very it's, creative way of telling your story. And uh, thanks so much for being on the show this morning, um, Catherine. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about it. Great, Tom Baker. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. You're 
listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Shanti Project founder, Charles Garfield, Ph.D., and author of Life's Last Gift, Giving and Receiving Peace When a Loved One is Dying. A good death is no oxymoron. It's within everyone's realm of possibility. Professor Charles Garfield argues that we need only realize its potential and prepare ourselves to meet it mindfully with compassion and courage. Dr. Garfield, founder of Shanty Project, an acclaimed AIDS and cancer service organization, was clinical professor of psychology in the psychiatry department at UC School of Medicine, San Francisco, for nearly four decades. He's currently a research scholar at the Star King School for the Ministry at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Charles. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, this is the holiday season, and we're going to be talking about dying, which is something that is a topic that I think a lot of people have a lot of difficulty for with, and unfortunately, uh, your book resonated with me because, you know, I am a social worker and not just and have worked in, in hospitals and worked on floors, the palliative care, et cetera. But recently I've had several relatives and friends die, so, and in ways that are not so inspiring, so, or that have been difficult both for the patient, for the family and the, and the person who, you know, has, is dying. So, um, I guess the first question is, um, I mean, you've had a lot of experience. I mean, you talk about seven keys to a good death. Now, so what, what does that actually mean, seven keys to a good death? What's a good death? Well, what I wrote about in the book is that a great deal more peace and comfort can come to the dying person and to family and friends at the end of life if a few somewhat simple principles can be followed. If there, it, What's interesting to me is that we have so few user-friendly resources available. We have more books on how to play golf and how to fix your car than we do on how to care for the people we love most in the world when they're in their most challenging time. And what I decided to do was to write a book that really covered those points necessary to allow for a much more peaceful death for those we love. Yeah. And with, and we, you know, I think we always say, you know, we'd like to, many people anyway, you know, we want to die at home, we want to die with our family and friends, so we want to be in the comfort of our own homes. But most people don't end up dying at home, first of all, do they? I mean, statistically, they end up dying in hospitals, being medicated and drugged, and with, unfortunately, sometimes the medical community trying to keep them alive when they're dying, so it's, it becomes a very uncomfortable situation at best. And uh, let's talk about that, because that's, sort of, that's the negative side of it. Well, it, actually, it depends on where you die. If, you, if you're in a, uh, an aggressive hospital setting where people are treating right up until the end, those kinds of negative stories may occur. And it's very important that people have their last wishes spelled out, what they really want, to, to, it, what, what kind of death they want, so that the healthcare people know and can abide by the wishes of the person dying. If you're in a hospice, however, there's much greater sensitivity 
to the comfort care aspects of, of dying. And the, and the kind of aggressive therapy that you're talking about tends not to happen. You know that the 650,000 people die in the U.S. every single year, and 90% of Americans believe that it's the family's responsibility to care for their loved ones. And that makes sense, except we don't have any guidance. We have so few resources available to us. Um, and you're quite right that in some of these situations it, it can be challenging. That's why I wrote the book. Okay. Well, all right. one of the things, the first thing that you say, or uh, one of the keys, I guess, in the book is uh, listen to the dying. Uh, and, and so what do you mean by that? Listen to, we have to listen to the dying, listen to well, the patient. I mean listen from the heart. Actually listen to what people are saying to you. Often when we talk with people, we pretend to listen. We're thinking about other things. We're thinking about when we're going to leave. We may be thinking that this is a scary situation, a difficult situation, and we wish we weren't here. We may be thinking we don't know what to say or do. Um, What I'm suggesting is listen from the heart. Really listen. Focus on what the other person is saying and learn to ask questions. You don't have to have all the answers. Uh, What we say in Life's Last Gift is that the... Art, the art of asking questions is one of the most important uh, skills of family members and friends when they're caring for someone they love. Yeah, I think uh, I have a, an example of that. I, a, a very close uh, friend of mine uh, just died a, a month ago, and I was there. You know, she had hospice in her house, and uh, she was dying, and I was there maybe two or two days before she actually died, but she was, you know, she hadn't eaten for a week, and she was obviously very sick and lying there. And one of the questions, she really, you know, people wanted to, to, to touch her and, and to, um, they would come in and they would want to say goodbye and touch her hand or touch her. Very uncomfortable for her, and the particular kind of cancer that she had, um, the hospice nurse said that, very often it is very uncomfortable to be touched, for instance, which is kind of a natural thing you want to do, make a connection. But I asked her the question, and, you know, she shook her head because she didn't want to be touched. I mean, so you listen to the dying patient. Why, you know, you don't want to make them uncomfortable. You don't want, it made me more comfortable to feel, you know, wanting to touch her, but she did not want to be touched. That an That's example? exactly what you and I would want if we were in that situation. We'd want somebody to pay attention to what our needs were, to ask us the question rather than just simply do stuff to us. So if somebody doesn't want to be touched, the way to find out is you ask, is it all right if I hold your hand? And if the person shakes their head no, then you have your answer. It's a much better strategy than to simply grab somebody's hand thinking that it's going to be a comforting thing when actually it isn't. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that, and I think people are afraid. I think you mentioned this in the book, but people, when someone is dying, they kind of treat them like they're already gone, they're already dead, rather than that they're still alive. They are dying, but they're not dead, and they That's can hear exactly you. And right. I think the last thing to go is your hearing, and you know, and you have, and um, even if you appear not to be able to hear, but. You, but you you can hear what's being said. But, yeah, I think dying rather than you're already gone, I think keep that in mind. That's, um, that's a very important point you're raising, that people are still alive. They're still part of our, our family, our kinship group. They're one of us. And one day you and I and all the rest of the people listening to this program are going to be in precisely this situation. 
Not me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I wish you the best, and if you have an answer how to get out of it, please let me know. But um, Uh, but that should be your next book, and uh, that will that will really sell. Um, Absolutely. One of the things, and this is, I think, a very difficult thing as part of the keys, one of the keys that you mentioned, recognize and resolve interpersonal conflicts. That's not so easy because, I mean, a lot, you know, people do die and they haven't resolved a lot of things and they're not going to be able to resolve all the conflicts. So how do, what do we do in that kind of situation? What if, you know, the person who is dying and is estranged from his you know, from maybe a good part of their family, uh, isn't, hasn't, in life hasn't been, this is a social work sort of input, I guess, uh, who hasn't been a particularly giving person or a particularly happy person. They're not all of a sudden going to change as they're dying. So you have to kind of work with them where they are, right? Absolutely. You work with them where they are, and you essentially allow them to tell their story. You allow them to tell you the story of what worked well and, and who they were close to and loved and what didn't work well and, and where there were difficult relationships in their lives. Just the fact that you allow them to tell their story, even if it's a difficult negative story, can be a, a tremendous uh, boost to the person dying, that they get it off their chest. They're able to to talk it through with somebody, even if it doesn't turn out beautifully in the end, then you're quite right. Uh, some of these relationships are not uh, repairable. They're, uh, they, they can be very difficult ones, but just the, the, the opportunity to talk about them can be very therapeutic for people at the end of life. Yeah, and you say, you know, you want to, as best you can, satisfy any of the wishes that the dying person has. Uh, but then you, I want you to, to address this. There's a difference between a good death and an appropriated death, one that's stolen from the dying person by other forces, like the agenda of close family members. And an issue is, well, one of the issues can be each family member may have a different agenda, obviously has a different relationship to the dying um, uh, person, family member. So that can get pretty sticky. It can get very sticky. And what yeah. we mean when we say an appropriated death is exactly what you said, a death stolen by the, the momentum of the healthcare system where aggressive therapy is used like we were talking about earlier, uh, when the person in the bed simply wants to let go, they, they've come to terms with it. They don't want aggressive therapy. I had a friend recently who went through a horrific death. Uh, what he wanted was he wanted to be left alone, and he wanted to be with his loved ones, and he simply wanted to die in peace. But when he got into trouble physically, all sorts of interventions started and it was really a, a gruesome scene, and it didn't, in the long run, it didn't save his life at all. It, his life was not going to be saved. Um, that's a death that's stolen, and sometimes, as you suggest, it can happen because family members have different opinions. Somebody wants aggressive therapy to try to save the life. Somebody else wants to allow the person to simply die in peace. That's why deathbed conversations are so important. You want to get the perspective of the person dying. What does he or she want? What do they actually wish for in their final hours and days? And not do it um, according to the agenda of anybody else except the person in the bed. Yeah, And you have to support them in that, too, because I think sometimes the forces, unless you are um, in hospice, 
if you're if you don't have hospice, I mean, you know, the doctor he or she may say, well, we might have, and this I've seen unfortunately, one more treatment that might work, let's say with cancer chemotherapy, and then the person goes through this horrendous three or four months of chemotherapy and dies a horrible death, whereas maybe they would have died in two months but at least been able to die in, literally die in peace and in comfort. Um, and that's another thing I'm going to talk about is pain management. But um, but there's that kind of like, and, and it's also part of our culture, I always our mentality, well, you know, there might be half a percentage of a chance that I might live. Well, and, and you have people or even medical personnel telling you that where you really need them to say, help you to let go. I mean, I think that's a big issue. It is a big issue. Helping clarify what the situation is truthfully. Who, will, who is willing to tell the truth to the person who's dying about what the options are? If the person has a, a half a percent chance of of living a little longer, but it's going to be in misery because the chemotherapy side effects are so gruesome, somebody needs to say that. Not simply to say we have another treatment that might help you. You have to be able to tell the person what they're likely to confront. Uh, we say that an awful lot in the book, that we well, that the, this whole issue of pain and how to manage pain and how to be truthful about how much pain there is likely to be is a very important aspect of caring for somebody at the end of life. I think you also mentioned, like, you know, pain management. Some people don't necessarily, some people maybe want to be as conscious as they can be and still manage the pain. And then at the other end, you may have people who say, you know, I, don't, I just want to, you know, I don't care how conscious necessarily I am or how with it I am. I just want to be, you know, I, I don't want to be in any pain and I don't necessarily need to be so connected. Have you found that in your in your well, in your practice? Very, very much so. People vary tremendously from those who want to be knocked out because the pain is too gruesome and they simply don't want to experience the pain anymore. They want the, the, uh, the medications to help dull the pain. Uh, to people who want to stay conscious and want to be available to their loved ones in conversation, even though they may be hurting at the time. That's why it's so important to talk to people, to get what their perspective is and to tell them the truth about what the options are. You talk about being mindfully present. Um, people who are dying, well, we, we, we did touch on this, should be treated as living human beings, obviously, um, who have good and bad days. Um, but it's important, you say, for care, caregivers to be mindfully present. Let's, just, let's be specific. What does that mean, mindfully present? What it really means is to be focused on the other person. Compassionate presence, mindfully present, means to keep your attention on the other person rather than let your attention drift to all sorts of things like what you can do to fix up the room or uh, uh, calling the doctor or doing all these other things which may make sense in the short term. But, but the, for the most part, when you visit with somebody you love who's dying, what they most want from you is your presence to be there. The experience, the key point is the experience of being cared for. The actual feeling that you're being cared for benefits the patient more than anything else you can say or do. And that means you have to be mindful of how you are at the bedside. Are you puttering around? Are you changing the subject? 
Are you filled with your own anxieties or are you really focused on the needs of the person in the bed? You can get, the good news is all of us can get better and better at being mindfully present, at being focused on the person in the bed and not so afraid and not so uh, stuck in our own thoughts and feelings. Yeah. Well, and you say we and we are so addicted to action, which is so true. We find it very uncomfortable, I think, um, uh, Americans do to be just sitting there and maybe saying nothing or feeling like we're saying nothing, doing nothing. Or if we're saying nothing, we're not doing anything because we just want to get up and, as you say, putter around, do something. Uh, makes us very uncomfortable. Um, I think n- not everybody, but I think a lot of people, and and uncomfortable to talk about. You know, when the dying person wants to talk about dying, trying to change. I've seen in many situations, loved ones, uh, caregivers, uh, tr- wanting to change the subject, acting as if they're going to be there, rather than letting them talk about when they're not going to be there and talk about their dying. Um, so it's our obviously our own discomfort and and. Um, Unfortunately, I think most people, I don't like to say most, but that, that is an issue. It's a, it's a definite issue. Yeah. That, you know, people, imagine yourself in that situation. You're in the bed, you're a patient, you, the thing you want to talk about most in the world is what's actually happening. The thought that you, you may die and that you feel worse than you've ever felt in your life in terms of energy level. And you, all you want to do is talk honestly with somebody, and every time you try to do so, they change the subject. That's a very cruel situation. We do it because we think it's the right thing to do, but it can be a very um, harsh blow to the person in the bed, the, the patient who's dying. Allow yourself, you the courage, allow yourself the courage to actually listen to what they're saying and respond to the truth of it. I have also uh, witnessed... Uh, people who love life and who are very engaged, and then they find out that they have, a, you know, they're they're going to die. Ha- sometimes have more difficulty with that. You know, there's sort of this myth that oh, if you've you've lived a good life and you've done what you've wanted to do or accomplished as much as you have wanted to accomplish and you feel good about yourself, that you're going to be able to sort of die the same way. But that doesn't always happen. I've witnessed people who, actually my own father, he loved life so He was really angry. He said, he, he wanted, you know, I would like to have a lot, many more years. He was not happy. It wasn't like, um, I think the acceptance perhaps wasn't there uh, because he embraced life so much. I mean, is that... Let's talk about that. Well, it's not so unusual. My mother had the same experience that your father did. I took care of both of my parents when they were in their final days. And people were telling my mother that she was 94 years old and she had had a good life. And everybody was telling her what a good life it was and she should be grateful. And she said, uh, if I've had such a good life, I'd like to have a lot more of it. So, you know, some people like your father or like my mother are yeah. m- much more interested in continuing with life. And, it, and it's, it's not that they're feeling so grateful for the life they've lived. They're, they're feeling sad by the, all the life that they'll never get to live. Yeah, I, I think that's important. Yeah, and, and, and grieving the loss, actually, and, and, and allowing people and, and being able to talk about that. Because, obviously, it's the biggest loss you're going to have. But... Um, and you're not going to be here, and to be, to, and and that that makes that makes caregivers so.
so un- many, you know, uncomfortable um, to be able to talk about that. Any more examples, like maybe just like that you've had, like the maybe the the most in your experience, like the deaths that have been probably the worst that you've seen that we can learn from, and maybe the best. Well, let me start with the best. Uh, okay. My father. It was an interesting experience. I was, it was a number of years ago, and I was trying everything to find some cure for my father's liver cancer. The doctor had said he had three to six months to live. And I was trying everything, and I was trying to convince him to go here and there to this specialist and that specialist. And one day he just looked at me, and he said to me, Charlie, I love you. And he said it in a, in a voice that I had never heard from that man before. It was a, a kind, loving voice. He said, all I want to do is spend time with you and your mother and your brother. I know that I'm dying. You don't have to be running around trying to get all this, these magical cures together. It's not going to work. I believe the doctors. They told me I only have a few months to live. Let's live them together. And we did. We lived it out together. We had good times. We watched movies. We talked. We reminisced about all those times we'd lived through. And when he died, he died with a smile on his face, which I've seen before. Um, when he was actually dying, there was a kind of smile that, uh, that told me, at least, that I preferred to believe that the smile was saying to me, we did it. We got through it together, and I love you. And it was, it was one of the best deaths I'd ever seen. On the downside, the friend I talked about earlier who wanted, who wanted the kind of death that my father had, he wanted that kind of comforting death with his loved ones, but because of the aggressive therapy that was used, um, he was given all sorts of treatments near the end of his life that made things miserable for him, and he, he died in pain and discomfort and was not able to have that kind of connection with his loved ones. Um, well, so you see, see, you see the whole gamut from beginning to end, from from yeah, one I mean, side to the, the other. Yeah, I mean that is the gamut, and the one you described with your father also. It sounds like he was a very wise man. Um, is the one we most all would like to have. Uh, I think the other one is probably more common, unfortunately. But um, let's. Well, we want to read your book, so because we only have a couple minutes left, because uh, there's. A lot in the book, obviously. Uh, Charles Garfield, Ph.D., and his book is Life's Last Gift, Giving and Receiving Peace When a Loved One is Dying. We can buy that online, bookstores everywhere. Give us um, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's available online, and it's available at my website, charlesgarfield.com. Great. Great having you on the show this morning. Well, my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, we're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.